I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Businesses and politicians have worked tirelessly to reduce the power of workers and to disassemble unions. Of course, nobody was better at it than Margaret Thatcher. In fact, to some people, she became Britain's national hero for doing just that. But has she and all those who did their damnness to reduce the power of unions actually done the country a disservice? Do economies function better with unions? Are they the necessary counter to a system that allows companies and financiers to push wages down to the lowest possible level? Which, with the gig economy, is certainly what we're seeing now. And along with it, even before COVID, COVID, very slow economic growth. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, uh, the importance of unions, I guess it really relates, doesn't it, Steve, to how we divvy up that, that concept of, uh, of surplus value, you know, the cost of uh, the difference between the cost of producing something and the price, price people are prepared to pay. So does, does, does that extra money, does it go to the workers? Does it go to the capitalists? Or I know your argument is now a lot of it actually goes to the financiers. So um, what do you think happens, for example, if we are all of a sudden prepared to pay twice as much for a UK car but the costs stay the same. Where does all the extra money go, do you how, think? How do we get to paying twice as much for a car? Well, I mean, to, to, let's, let's say, for example, we just, we all of a sudden, we love UK cars and the value of them, the perceived value is far greater than it was now, just because we all become very patriotic and we say, oh, you've got to buy a UK car. And because there's such demand, uh, then uh, the car manufacturers put their prices up, but their costs stay the same. So all of a sudden, they've got all this extra uh, surplus. Am I talking to an economic textbook here, or is this Phil Dobby? No, this, you're, talking, you're talking to Phil Dobby at the moment. But I'm just, okay, I'm okay. just, like, I just as in, a, company, <laughs> a company's margins increase for whatever reason. Where does all the extra mm. money go? Does it go to the profits of the company? Do they say, oh, no, we'll, we'll pay our workers a bit more? Or does the bank come back and say, hey, we lent you all this money. We want you to pay it back quicker because you've got so much money sitting in your bank. Well, if you, ha- if you had an increase in demand for English cars, it would have fallen on the cost of production of those cars quite substantially because uh, the, you know, within a well-organised factory, its cost of production, uh, marginal cost of constant or falling, um, assuming the same cost of inputs, which, of course, we're not going to say that wages rise. Uh, so your costs fall. You're using your fixed capital uh, more efficiently, so your per unit fixed costs co- fall as well. And you get a you, 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 the increase in volume means an in, a massive increase in profit at the same time. Hmm. So that's 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 your starting point. Um, but would then, you said wages rise, but they wouldn't necessarily, would they? I mean, well, could- the thing is, you'd, you'd have to have something which you're not going to do it at the individual firm level. This comes down to the overall macro economy. Um, do you do you increase or decrease the demand for labour overall? And if you if you had a substantial increase in the demand for labour, then maybe you would see uh, wage rises being feasible. Uh, the question is, how would they happen these days? Well, in these days, you'd need to get rampantly high employment to get to the point where 
employers were offering higher wages to try to steal employees away from other firms to come and work for them. Uh, whereas back when we had trade unions, if there was an increase in the bargaining power of the workers in general by a fall in the unemployment rate, that would be turned up as something the unions would use as a negotiating ploy to push for a high level of wages uh, uh, the following year. And um, that well, what we had by what we had instead after forty or fifty years of destroying unions, uh, you know, by everything everything that a union did was bad, everything a government employee or a government employer that it was a good type attitude. Uh, they've been so totally weakened that the the bargaining power for workers has disappeared. And what you've seen this this is something which has turned up in economic data across the planet. Uh, workers' share of GDP reached its maximum in 1973. It's been on a downward run ever since. Mm, Yeah. Well, 1979, in the UK, there were 13.2 million people in trade unions. Now it's about half that, even though the population over that time of the the country has risen by a quarter. So, uh, yeah big drive away from unions so so yeah so that bargain it's that bargaining power so all the, the marxist theory about the power of the worker was really driven wasn't it by organized labor and now uh, labor's disorganized yeah i mean a large part of it i mean i, I was involved in the trade union movement uh, in a peripheral way in australia back in the early 70s and throughout uh, you, you just had uh, unions being demonized as unions being responsible for bad work practices and uh and go slow campaigns and and strikes, of course, are never popular with the work with the pop- populace that has to feel the impact of the strike. So strikes were demonised as well. Um, and like I, I've got to give some personal anecdotes about seeing some of the bad bad behaviour that people talk about with unions, uh, because my my then girlfriend back in the uh, uh, mid seventies was doing an industrial relations major, and as part of that major, you were required to go and interview the. Uh, an executive of a of a um, union, and she managed to get to interview the executive of the uh, car manufacturers union. I've forgotten its name back then, and it was quite a funny experience. I asked if I could trot along, which I did, and we were led into the guy's you know nicely panelled room, and he then explained how other unions you know do things like campaign over having soap in the washroom, and he brought it all down to bargaining over the wage level. And we then went out to have a chat with the, the other staff in the, um, in the office, and I spiked the conversation a bit about comparing different types of cars. You know, you're a Ford or a Holden buyer. That was the, the choice back in those days. And they avidly dived into the advantages of Fords versus Holdens. And I walked out and said, like, you know, having worked in a few factories as part-time jobs as a student, it matters whether there's soap in the washroom. That's the sort of thing you want the union to take care of. And these guys, they weren't talking like people who'd worked making cars. They were talking as consumers of cars. There was a huge disconnect between this management of the union Mm. and the union, the workers itself, I thought. And three weeks later, I think it was three or four weeks later, there was a news story where the union had had gone into the South Australia, the union organiser had gone into the the, uh, South, South Australian plant to try to take over some industrial dispute that the workers themselves were running at that plant. And he was literally thrown out of the building over its barbed wire fence by the workers. Wow. So, you know, so, so some of that stuff about bad union behaviour, I've, I've seen it and I've experienced it too. Yeah. Um, 
and that, and that, so, and that yeah. yeah, and that's created the problem, hasn't it? Because, I mean, it's part in, of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, in, in the in the ideal world, the union would be there to say, well, okay, look, you know, the the, the company is performing well. We know that it's, the the margins are quite large. We believe a significant proportion of that should go in in salaries for the workers because they've helped. And to you create also that, that talking margin. about working conditions because we're seeing right now reports about the working conditions of workers in Amazon, and they're absolutely appalling. The company has a policy of sacking people. Uh, you, 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 as a Manager, you get sacked if you don't sack enough of your own employees over time, and the turnover seems to be running at the order of 100 to 150 percent of the workforce a year, uh, which is you know dreadful, dreadful conditions all around. So if you had a union in there which is actually working in the interests of the workers themselves, they'd be saying we want to get rid of this policy about automatic sacking. We want to have you know better rest periods, uh, all the stuff to make it pleasant, relatively pleasant to be at work rather than uh, a penalty in a scare system. Uh, but, of course, at the moment, there's no un- union to, to fight back against Amazon. Uh, and, and quite frequently, the workers themselves can accept the demonisation of unions they see in the media. Mm. And one of the arguments that you hear a lot from you know, neoclassic economists and Tory MPs, which, of course, they are the same thing, is that uh, if, you, if unions were to push, or if workers generally were to push too hard for higher wages, then they are going to remove the incentive for that company to uh, exist or to produce as many goods because they'll say, oh, we're not making the margins that we need to survive. Uh, ideally, of course, you know, the workers or the, you, the the representative of the workers would know, would understand, you know, what are the margins that the business makes? How much money is up and available? But, of course, it's always just open to negotiation. They push as far as they think they can. Um, but, of course, you know, they could, they could be way off the mark because it's a, it's a confrontational thing rather than actually – uh, a collaborative thing and I think I wonder but, whether but that's part, part of the problem yeah. but it's also part of the solution and this is uh, I actually saw Noah, Noah Smith uh, the guy I've had a couple of run-ins with over time and got to have a pretty pleasant relationship with these days mainstreamer but he can see uh, he sees outside the mainstream envelope quite frequently and he was making the case which again you can find in the economic literature and in, in history that high wages actually lead to a high rate of innovation. Because mm. if you are for facing a, a workforce which can organise and demand higher wages as an employer, one way to get around that is to innovate and reduce your need for labour. And f- often it, it's, it, the case is that high wages actually spur some of the industrial development that means technology improves. And over time, you get an increase in the, uh, in, in the real wage coming out of that, uh, as well as an increase in the you know quality of and, and quantity of goods produced, so there's a a very good argument that the reason the spinning jenny worked as an invention was because it was in Scotland, uh, and if you the original spinning jenny I think had one, had one worker spinning six wheels, uh, which meant that that one worker took the place of you know you had one worker plus a spinning jenny taking the place of six workers with six ordinary uh, uh, spinning wheels, and so long as the cost of the capital and maintenance was less than the cost of the five workers. The, invest- the, the industrialists who were buying it came out ahead, and given the wages that applied in Scotland, that was the case. Now, when you did the same comparisons in France, where the wages were a lot lower, as it happens at the time, uh, the, the benefit of the spinning jenny was negative because the, it, it, it would cost you... Uh, you, you, could, you, could do the, you could get the same work out of, out of two workers. So you, the wages you were paying were so much lower... Uh, that it wasn't worth the cost of the spinning jenny to replace them. So mm. partly the technological development seen over time has been pushed by this wage and profit struggle. Uh, 
uh, which yeah, unions so were you, part of. Yeah, so, but well, and there we are. If you push the prices too high, then you do get that investment in technology. But the problem is that the technology will get cheaper. It'll, it'll be easier and cheaper to, to use machines. The cost of machines comes down because you're using more of them. So there's economies of scale, plus technology is, is you know, seeing prices come down anyway. Uh, they become more efficient to produce the machines themselves. Uh, which means that pay would also have to reduce to get to be cheaper than those machines. No, to not necessarily. The point where they I mean, become unlivable, yeah. doesn't it? Uh, this, this is, I mean, in, in some ways, this is the basis of my Goodwin, the models that I build of the economy, which are Goodwin models, based on Richard Goodwin's work, uh, which has the idea of workers' wage demands being a function of the rate of employment, which is the standard Phillips curve argument, and investment being driven by profits. Uh, Goodwin didn't have any any debt in his model. And in fact, he and I corresponded over this uh, when I was writing my PhD, which was quite an experience for me as a young, no, I wasn't young, I was in my 30s, but you know, a, a newly minted academic. And here is this great man, Richard Goodwin, writing very pleasantly to me and very informatively. Uh, but his model anyway, uh, was basically the model that Marx had uh, in his head in the 1867, when he wrote the first volume of Capital. And that was that if you have a, a um, a, a low level of wages that inspires a high level of investment and the high level of investment leads to increasing employment which ultimately means that the workers can demand wage rises that cut into profit and mean profit drops so you have a low level of investment which means that unemployment rises and you get a cycle a cyclical pattern between uh, employment and wages share of gdp and right. over time that is what uh, both is driven by and inspires technological change and in that sense the real wage and real incomes rise over time as well so that's but I wonder the where they need circle to, right but i wonder in that in that in those cycles whether you know increasing in those cycles there's more machines and less workers each time because we it is uh, so that's part of the theory i mean that's that's uh, again in, in goodwin's model what you have and this applies to most economic models as well you have an idea of exogenous technological change it's happening anyway Mm. Uh, I, I brought in in my PhD the idea that technological change was a function of the rate of employment. You had a, a low level, which would be with low profit, and a high, higher level, which would be with higher profit. But of course, it was like a, 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 a sigmoid shape, as it's called, a logistic curve, minimum and maximum levels. So in that sense, technological change is endogenous and is driven by competition over the share of income. Uh, so all, but all this stuff is, is what has led to the evolutionary process of capitalism, which is the one strong argument, the strongest argument you have for capitalism in favour of any other social system is the extent to which it inspires innovation. And uh, this is where again Janos Kornai's work I think is so important because he points out that companies uh, in capitalism, companies don't compete with the standard product by changing the price. They compete compete with diversified products by trying to capture more of the market, the existing market for transportation of other other forms of transportation and other car manufacturers. So uh, it, it's it's what 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 is the impact of trade unions on that innovative process? And frankly. Like in the neoclassical point of view, everything unions do is bad because they change the equilibrium price level for wages. They put wages above the marginal product of labour. But in the real world, what you tend to see is that that level of uh, contesting by workers over the share of the distribution of income ends up causing a high level of technological growth. Uh, and you get that the creative uh, a positive feedback loop 
that Marx identified in 1867 and Goodwin modelled in 1967, that becomes your reality. But I don't understand in that model how, say, for example, you start in a position where uh, 90% of the cost was uh, was the workers and then through technology it gets down to 50% and then 40% and then 20%. Aren't you going to get to a stage where, you know, automation, you, know, you get to a wave where there's so few extra people employed uh, that the, the the impact of their their wage cost is is negligible, so that 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 step forward stops happening. Uh, well, that that isn't part of of Goodwin's model because he um, just assumes technological development continue, occurs continuously uh, without without limit. And, right. um, to a point where we don't but, employ anybody at all, presumably. Yeah, that would yeah. Be the well, I mean, point. that 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 is the point. I mean, the point is there are some. The assumption in the model that you need some labour to produce your output. Now, mm. so long as that was true, and it has remained true until, uh, still, still obviously true right now, but it's becoming less and less the case. So, for example, I watched an interesting uh, YouTube uh, video yesterday about a new company, I think it's called Relativity, a new rocket launching company, uh, which won't be launching its first rocket until 2024. Um, but it's building its rockets using 3D printing technology. And one of the advantages of 3D printing is uh, that you, don't, you can produce with many less components because it's all you know, a large part of what you do when you build a, any object is you're, you're putting many, many subcomponents together. And you, you need labor, of course, to put those subcomponents together. Uh, but when you have uh, 3D printing, then there can be a nerd with a keyboard um, who's controlling the entire process and you will need workers for some servicing of the of the actual machine doing the 3D printing. But you get down to the role where there's only a service role for labour, not a, a skilled, not not an unskilled or a skilled input. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that is we we have never been to that point before. And the other thing which we which is which is novel in the last 50 years is that normally. Uh, like what Marx thought would happen was uh, a miserization of the working class over time. His whole idea of the tendency for the rate of profit to fall uh, was arguing that capitalists would uh, crush uh, the division of labor uh, dramatically. So you you, know, you don't you wouldn't have um, um, you know a myriad industrial uh, skills and particular uh, trade skills anymore. We'd all be just unskilled workers working with machines um, and. In, in that world, there'd be a, this in, increase of the class conflict. Instead, what happened was an enormous expansion of the bureaucracy, both mm. in government itself but also in corporations. So there's an yeah. enormous sales level. You know, you were the part introduction, of the, the introduction, Yeah, the introduction of the bullshit jobs. Uh, yeah, and well, congratulations, uh, or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or the consulting jobs as well. I mean, there's, these are things that weren't around when Marx was around, wasn't it? You know, there's, there's consulting mm. but, jobs. But the there wasn't management any- jobs. And I'm, I'm, just talking, I'm not talking managing director stuff. It's right down to the clerks at the other end of the scale. Uh, to run an industrial corporation is a large bureaucratic process. And mm. what Marx was leaving out of his thinking was uh, the, 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 the contest of labour and capital uh, could lead to larger and larger industrial aggregations as well. And those industrial aggregations needed internal bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy made uh, the expansion of the, uh, the what, what Marx actually did talk about, supervisory employees. So that, that could expand 
as much as the uh, industrial working class contracted. And in fact, that's what we saw rather than the type of uh, division into uh, just the working class and capitalists on the other side, which was Marx's vision. We had this enormous growth in the middle class, and that's yeah. where the large, most of the incomes come out of middle class jobs. Now, with computers, uh, there was some reduction in that, but as we're seeing AI, and it's narrow AI, not, not, the, not the sort of broad, they call GAI, generalized uh, artificial intelligence. It's narrow AI where you use a, 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 a dense neural network to re- replace, for example, medical diagnosis. So mm. you, if you um, uh, have that happening, then a large part of the work of doctors gets eliminated. Uh, you should have... Uh, far, I mean, the state of computer database software still pisses me off as an expert, as an ex-designer of computer databases, uh, as how bad modern software is. But the, a whole lot of the data entry, data capture, uh, all those sorts of jobs could be eliminated by AI. Yeah. So we are now in a... And the combination of, 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 of narrow AI plus uh, 3D printing and a range of other... Uh, additive, as they call them, production technologies, could mean that finally starts to happen. And the bargaining power of workers will tend towards zero, which is is one reason I support a universal basic income. I think that tendency, uh, technologically, I think is going to manifest itself. If we survive climate change, it'll manifest itself over the next 20 to 50 years. And frankly, it has to if we're going to avoid long-term consequences from climate change. Well, the, the the demise of unions was largely, wasn't it, because the the people in power, and it happened sort of like you know, almost universally in the nineteen eighties, didn't it? It was mm. the belief that well, people can negotiate their their own salaries. We don't need unions to do that. You know, maybe there can be a bit of uh, collective bargaining. But if you were, but you know, I've always negotiated my own salary when I've gone for a job. I've said how much I'm prepared to uh, to accept to be paid for that job. But that is very different from somebody who is uh, working on the uh, on the shop floor in a in a factory. Uh, they're told what their what their salaries are, and, and part of that is you know because what what you're pointing to, uh, you know you've got all those uh, those management jobs where you you can demand the salary that you think you're worth, but those people who are uh, in the you know lower grade jobs um, and not lower grade people, just in lower grade jobs, their their salary is determined by at what point are they going to be replaced by a machine, which the the manager doesn't have to worry about. Yeah, and, and so you and need the union we, down at that level. That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, because they are never going. They're never going to individually. When your employment is at a commodity type level, and that was the case in the fifties and sixties, of course, with your industrial workers in America, uh, then your capacity to get a wage comes out of both the level of economic activity and how organised you are as labour, and. Uh, and, and because American capitalism was absolutely rapacious at crushing the unions, it wasn't just through, uh, you know, thing, uh, peaceful methods. Uh, we we had a, you know the, the breaking of things like the Teamsters Union was done using organised crime. So, uh, but economic theory supported organised crime by arguing there shouldn't be unions in the first place. So what you've ended up getting out of it, the, the polarisation that Marx thought would happen uh, in all capitalisms. And, and as an inevitable process of, you know, unstoppable forces, as he thought the tendency for the rate of profit to fall was, instead happened out of uh, political power and, mm. and outright thuggery by the wealthy against the poor in America. And we're seeing a minor manifestation of that these days in Amazon, though not minor for the workers who are suffering it. But uh, I don't think Jeff Bezos is hiring organised crime to crush workers. But uh, that's what we had happening back in the 50s and 60s in America. 
Interestingly, though, he is pushing up uh, minimum wage, isn't it? I mean, he's, uh, you, you know, they've pushed minimum wage up to $15 in the US for Amazon workers before the government did. I mean, the the, the median wage um, before they did that in 2019 was 35000 per Amazon worker, uh, which is which is still pretty low. But, mm. it, I mean, you, you're making a point here. The size of a business is crucial, isn't it? If you have market power and you've got, you know, a, a, a nice margin, on their on your revenue, then uh, you can cream the profits and still manage to pay your workers lower wages. Yeah, and then this is the problem again. Again, the, the neoclassical mindset is everything is perfect competition, and the mm. idea of a you know almost individual employer with almost individual workers. Uh, you know, we might have one one employer per ten people type thing, and you can go and directly bargain with the boss. I mean, I had a part time job like that <clears throat> back in Australia, working at a, in a little. Um, a sheet metal company called Camac Engineering. Cameron and uh, uh, Maury Cameron was the guy who ran it. A damn good bloke, I might say. Maury, if you're still around, I hope you're doing well. Uh, but when I started working at that job, the pay rate was $2 an hour. That was the, And this was 1973. And that was the beginning of the huge increase in inflation. Uh, I think the wage went up, uh, the inflation was 17% that year. So when I began, two bucks an hour was good. And at the end, two bucks an hour wasn't so crash hot. And, uh, and Murray was a decent, decent bloke, and he put the wages up to $3 an hour. And, uh, you know, I didn't have to bargain a, a great deal, but I could literally see the boss, and he could see I wasn't happy with the two. And uh, he even made up for the fact that I had, um, you know, suffered a low wage because two was no longer good when I started. Uh, a, 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 he bought three bicycles for the, at the end of Christmas, two for his kids and one for me. Um, so that, but that's the sort of personal level fictionalization that neoclassicals make of the entire industrial system. Now, most people, you're working in Amazon. You don't go and chat with Jeff Bezos on a daily basis. Jeff doesn't seem to see that you're, you're starving and your kids are doing badly uh, and you're disgruntled uh, on a daily basis. In fact, he's paying people not to see that. So it's the scale of, the, the scale of power and the expression of power uh, which is massively in favour of the corporate sector, and the workers have been crushed by comparison. So, would, did did unions give more of that power back to workers then? And do we need that? Because, of course, if Jeff I, Bezos I, I, is yeah. if, is paying, to, let me finish this point quickly. If Jeff Bezos is not paying people very much money, then those people don't have very much money to shop on Amazon. And you could say, well, okay, so collectively, it's in the interest of business to pay enough people so there's enough money floating around in the economy, so there's enough consumption going on. But no individual company is going to say, well, we're going to push up our wages as our part towards that. You almost need a collective force from a union to say, yeah, we demand a higher minimum wage. All of us, all of us workers want it and actually could be the benefit to the benefit of all of those companies collectively because there's going to be more consumption as a result of it. Yeah, and then that's the other side of, of uh, all the neoclassical thinking is microeconomics. You know, this is the cost to you, but a cost to you is an is a source of expenditure to others. So, mm-hmm. and that's why I prefer to. You know, that's why I work in the, the Goodwin world at the aggregate level, where you can see that. Whereas neoclassicals, with their f- fetish on microeconomics, can't, and then become anti anti-trade union because they argue that you know, trade unions drive the wage above the marginal product. Screw the marginal product. This is, again, another piece of textbook economics, that workers earn their marginal product. In fact, I've, I've just been explaining a, a couple of times recently that my break 
from believing in neoclassical theory to seeing that it was full of holes came when uh, my then lecturer, Frank Stilwell, explained the theory of the second best to me using the example, the whole class of course, as a first year student at the time, explained the theory of the second best using the example of wage bargaining uh, where you, you start off with the assumption of a either monopoly buyer of labour or an employer's uh, organisation standing off against a union. And you then found that uh, it, the, the, the standard theory assumed uh, uh, individual workers com uh, competing against each other with individual employers competing against each other, perfect competition prevailing, and the wage being the marginal product of labour. Uh, but when you include the unions, existence of unions and existence of uh, industrial agglomerations, you get that the wage lies between the marginal revenue product and the mar marginal sales product, I think it was called, M M R M MRP and M... I'm going to MSP, I'm not sure. But there was a gap between the two and the bargaining would determine whereabouts the wage fell. Now, if you got rid of the union or the monopoly, you would make the situation categorically worse, according to neoclassical theory, because you would go back to the workers getting their marginal revenue product, which is much lower than their marginal product. The reason I say marginal revenue product is that uh, you, you, when, you, when you have a... Um, the standard theory assumes that the firm can produce as much output as it likes and sell it without losing any uh, any revenue. The idea of perfect competition, marginal revenue equals price. But if you, you know, that's garbage as I've proved in other, other uh, work work of mine on on the theory of the firm. But when you when you accept that that there's a um, um, employers with 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 uh, bargaining power and they face they have a, a downward sloping demand curve, then each increase in output reduces the price as well as increasing the quantity. And when the relevant term is not the marginal product, but the marginal revenue product. Now, if you have disorganised workers facing organised employers, the workers get their marginal revenue product, which is less than their marginal product because they're wearing the, the cost of the lower price that the, the goods have to be sold at for the higher, the higher quantity being sold. Um, so, and that's, that is provably a worse outcome in mm. neoclassical welfare maximisation terms. So what we've done is actually get to that situation where the workers are being screwed. They're the ones who are covering effectively, and even in economic theory, the, the cost of the d diminished uh, price for the increased quantity. They're getting less than their marginal product, and the, the unions at least give them a chance to get close to their marginal product. And, 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 and again, the whole thing is nonsense because what actually determines... Uh, wages and profits is bargaining power. On that front alone, abolishing trade unions has reduced the bargaining power of the workers and therefore increased the bargaining power of the employers. But and it's also short-lived anyway, because if they can't afford to buy anything, you know, which is my point in, in, where we started this uh, this part of the discussion, if they, if they can't afford to buy anything because they haven't got the money, then there's not going to be the demand there anyway. So they're not going to well, see what you, what you get is a third. Well, you, you get a stagnate, a stagnant outcome. You don't mm. get the dynamism of capitalism. You yeah. get, oh, you know, why... why why, why industrialise, why innovate when uh, we can just you know, screw the workers harder? You actually get the situation that Marx talked about, which was a miserization. And in that situation, then you start getting the, the level of, of you know, breakdown and lack of respect for your social system because, hey, I'm being screwed by it. Why should I respect it? Uh, so a large part of, I think, of the social discord we can see in America is, I would say, a byproduct of the success in suppressing the trade union movement and keeping wages low.
Yeah, and if you keep wages low, then people have got less money to spend on stuff. Therefore, they demand yeah. lower prices for goods. So yeah. goods can't increase. So then we get to the low inflation environment, which is we're in, or possibly the deflationary environment. So yeah. it all it all makes sense, doesn't it? What about and, um, mm. what about uh, the, let's bring? Uh, we talked a bit about Ricardo last uh, last week, and you know the, the thoughts on comparative mm. advantage. And if we look at the demise of the unions in the UK, it was very much in the eighties, wasn't it? After the the miners' strike, when Britain was closing down mines and steelworks because it was was cheaper to import from overseas and there's this idea that all those workers all of a sudden will become brain surgeons or whatever they could retrain mm-hmm. as over the weekend mm-hmm. um, but if, if unions have no power uh, they they would have even even if they're around they would have less power if it's cheaper to buy stuff from overseas because you know those industries will just say well, well there's even you know irrespective of what we pay if it's cheaper overseas we can't compete i wonder whether that uh, whether the opening up of trade was also a big part of this demise of yeah. unions because it was like the, the end argument isn't it you can demand what you want but we're still going to buy it from germany well uh, that's well put and that actually is was was a major reason why neoclassical economists favored the campaign for for real for for free trade because they knew that and i've mm. actually had some dealings with uh, free trade advocates back in Australia, which was quite funny because, as I mentioned before, I had a, a peripheral involvement in the trade union movement. I worked in what was called the Business Union Consultation Unit, or BUCU for short, uh, of the <laughs> Department of Trade uh, under the Labor government in the Accord days. And the whole the role of BUCU was to have... Uh, just to organise one letter. Huh? Don't worry, you <laughs> no, on. that wasn't at all the reason we chose that abbreviation. <laughs> Not at all. No. Anyway, um, so um, we um, we organised these conferences with workers and unions, employers and unions from the same industry, to get them to to get to get together and negotiate and look at the situation of their economy with a bit of an you know, intelligent background provided by us in terms of what the state of the the industry was and so on and one of those i ran ran once was the for the food uh, the the food preservers union you know, the fpu and the food industry and of course that's always a major target uh, of the attempts to reduce tariffs in australia and we invited along a, a member of the industry's assistance commission and the nickname that both the unions and the management had for the iac was the industry's assassination commission and he gave a paper on uh, on the uh, r- r- real effective tariff rate for food food goods and uh, preserved foods in Australia, and was he he got the shock of his life uh, because he just got attacked by both the workers and the management at this meeting. How totally useless their theory was, and uh, you know it was it was it was quite a lot of fun to watch. And then afterwards, this is back at the uh, Clyde Cameron. Uh, college in Albury Wodonga, which is it's about as. Have you been to Albury Wodonga? Yeah, yeah. Well, like a lot of people, I've travelled through it. No, well, that's do, about do as people, exciting as it stop is. There? Yeah. People do actually <laughs> live there. Yeah, there wasn't much yeah. else to do in Albury Wodonga, and we, it was actually set up in such a way. You can that, watch the trains you know, go through, huh? You can watch the trains go through once a day. Yeah, every every once every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so there was, you know, it was it was a, it was chosen as a site that meant you. You couldn't get distracted, and you would have to focus on what you were teaching in the in terms of the, that was the trade union training authority building, uh, and of course in our case, uh, when you got the management of the workers together, they had nothing to do but go to the same bar and meet and talk. So it was a whole idea about trying to bring about a sort of a Swedish style, uh, you know, a worker a worker management uh, collectivism. Anyway, this guy uh, was shell shell shocked after being attacked by both sides and invited me over for a drink at his table, and at one stage came up with this wonderful line, look, 
You've studied economics. Help me convert these people. <laughs> it's a religion. He didn't yeah. know it himself, but it's a religion. So do we fix that? I mean, the issue is, isn't it? Because, I mean, the, the, the argument about, oh, we don't need unions because, if, hey, look, you know, average salaries generally, mm. they've been increasing higher than inflation. But and, and they have. Uh, so it's hard to argue against that. But the real issue is, is the difference in pay, isn't it? So it is the... Well, there's also the share of GDP that's going to workers, and that has fallen consistently and has been falling since the, since the early 70s. Oh, but you don't need to worry about that, Steve, because I'm still getting paid more than uh, than inflation. So, OK, the country as a whole is is getting much, much better off, but I'm still getting better off than I was. I mean, that's the that, that would be the argument that would be used, wouldn't it? But, I mean, yeah. the... But there is a huge difference. It's not just the fact that we're not getting as much as we should if we look at the, the, the growth in GDP. It's the yeah. way it's really we're getting less innovation coming out of it and so on. And, yeah. and, and, and a distortion of the industrial structure and the growth of finance and so on. And so, like, you know, we've got a pretty unhealthy industri- industrial section sector at the same time as we have a very unhealthy planet. Well, and it's, uh, yeah, and, we, and it's how that money is split up as well. So in finance and business services, the average uh, salary just before COVID in the UK was £700 a week. If you're in retail or catering, it's uh, it's half that. So mm, it's quite, mm. quite a difference, quite a difference, a magnitude of two to one. Uh, you know, no wonder um, some people have nice houses and some people can't afford to rent a flat even. Yeah, so that's, it's the, just, that's the real yeah. issue, I think. That's the real issue, the inequality of income distribution and the unfairness of it and the fact that it's ended up going to the rentier class rather than either the workers or capitalists. Right. And that's the world we're in by having effectively abolished union power. So if we brought back unions, I'm not quite sure how we do that. Is that the answer or do we just need government regulation, like, for example, applying you know the rates of pay for the lowest to highest paid workers? I suspect that any attempt by governments will always fail because they are obviously going to tend... Uh, to, to they'll, they'll tend to side with business more than they, they will with workers. Which is another one of Marx's comments, which is becoming more and more true that the mm. the, the uh, government is the is the management committee of the ruling class. Yeah, and that's what we've seen that you know, drastically in both Australia and the uh, UK to choose the cases we're looking at in free trade in last week. So yeah, it's uh, it's in that, in that sense you need a a diversified power system and in that sense the trade unions gave you a, a power structure for workers that's been taken away and we've ended up in a bipolar world of uh, power for power for employers and power for the government and the government pretty much sides with the employers so it makes it even worse for the party without power so the best argument in favor of trade unions is your workers should have bargaining power in a capitalist economy and unions uh, one way that they have had that in the past, whether they can have the same impact in the future. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, as I said, I see a, I see a, post, a post-employment world uh, looming in the far future, so we can't rely upon that alone. But what it does mean, it's a form of, in, in, of organisation for people with shared interests in the community, not based around their ownership of, of, uh, of capital and not based around being uh, government bureaucrats. And I think that sense of community power is an essential part of a well-functioning society, if we ever manage to get one. Well, yeah, and uh, it's going to take a long time, I think, because I don't know whether it's Stockholm Syndrome or not, but the the people who benefit from all of that tend to vote against it. Well, they certainly did in the last election, didn't they, in the UK? And yet mm. here we had uh, John McDonnell, uh, and I can I can see that the uh, you know the former Labour Labour leader you know wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but some of his ideas are okay. And John McDonnell, the the Shadow Chancellor at the time, took to the last U, uh, UK election the idea that. 
companies should uh, allow workers to own shares in in companies, and that would give them some power. Because that uh, and uh, you know the argument against it, obviously, by everyone uh, who hold held shares, was that it would devalue existing shareholders if you were going to uh, issue more shares to give to the workers. But the other thing he was also saying was that there should be a proportion of seats at the board table, and that's I mean, actually that, the that situation. Could make a big difference, mm-hmm. isn't it? That's actually the situation in Germany. And uh, Germany has what they call the Aufsichtsrat board system, which is a parallel board system where the workers and community and, and, and customers to some extent are part of the management input for a company. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk sighed, I'd back German companies over American companies any day. Yeah, well, there we are. So maybe that is the answer. Maybe John McDonnell had the answer. He just didn't explain it well enough. You know, the, how many, I wonder how many of these problems would be fixed. If unions have become toothless, uh, we're not going to see them ag- again anyway. They've been eff- effectively quashed. But the, the issues that they were helping to tackle remain and have got worse, then maybe this is the answer, that it just becomes more official and it's rep- they have representation in the board. Then they actually do see the way the, op- the, the, the company is operating and the company can see the issues that the workers are facing. It seems like a, a no-brainer, doesn't it? It is, which is why it probably won't happen. <laughs> well, it could happen, though, couldn't it? It just needs a change of government. John McDonnell maybe needs to come back uh, with a with a different Labour leader, and maybe there's a chance. But as you say, it's a bit unlikely, mm. isn't it? I'm just trying to duck. There was a pig flying overhead. <laughs> All right. Good to talk, Steve. Okay. See you next time. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. The tide has to turn at some point, doesn't it? At some point, we're all going to look at the growing inequality in society and look at how that's affecting the broader economy and realise that's the one thing we've got to fix. So, mate, I'm a bit more hopeful than Steve is on that. That's it for this week. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Back again with another Debunking Economics podcast next week. Thanks for listening. See you then. 